because you're jumping back into the gap. Oh, let's hey, go. Coach. Welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. I appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit basketballimmersion.com for more coaching resources and access to all the basketball podcasts. I hope you will give us a shout out on social media, on Twitter at Bball Immersion, or on Instagram at Basketball Immersion to help me continue to share the game. Enjoy the episode. Excited to welcome NBA staff editor for The Athletic and author Mike Prada to the Basketball Podcast. Prior to joining The Athletic, Mike was the NBA editor for SB Nation's main page. He's the author of Spaced Out, How the NBA's Three-Point Revolution Changed Everything You Thought You Knew About Basketball. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Chris, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be on. Well, honor for me too. I love reading your stuff. I've heard you on some podcasts and your book, Spaced Out, uh, is just just great. It's brilliant. It's an enjoyable read from an entertainment. Yeah, you're holding it up. I love it. <laughs> it's enjoyable from an entertainment perspective, but also from a coach's perspective. I mean, I, I, I just love how, and I don't know how you did it, so we'll get into the process at some point, but you married all these kind of different possible people that would read the book and you really married it really well. Well, I really appreciate that. Uh, definitely was the goal. You know, I think, you know, I'm not a coach. I'm a writer. I'm a fan of the sport. And I'm the person that, you know, was connected to this game, you know, growing up with my dad. And, you know, that's sort of my lens. And so in our business, so much of what we have to think about is how do we make this make sense to the average person? Uh, and so I just, I also was very lucky to come from a place in SP Nation that ran to the fan perspective so to me it was just the number one priority was like let's make this so that it's not too not too dense but it's also doesn't treat the audience like they're stupid uh and it just sort of to me i think the curiosity really drove the whole thing you know it's really funny to hear this is like a thing that's exciting for coaches because some one of the things i kept thinking a lot about as i was writing this is that like this is almost like an existential threat to coaches in some ways some of the the things that are discussed in here so uh i hope that they get a lot of it i hope they don't feel like man what am i doing here no no i think i think and we'll talk about that because that's really what my first question was for you which is this concept that because at the heart of the book is why it takes so long for contrarian thinking to stimulate change to mm-hmm. me, that was the heart of it for me, because I I face that, if you want to say it, existentialist crisis every day with the stuff I share somewhat, too. Yeah, and I, I think uh, in coaching in particular, it's really hard because so much of what this era is about, at least in the NBA, I want to be clear that it's an it's a book about the NBA's three-point revolution. I think everything does flow down really probably more accurately it flows from overseas to the nba and down um probably but you know i think there are obviously different pressures for coaches of college programs big college programs high school programs youth programs that a lot of this may not apply um but yeah a lot of it is the the lesson is sort of let the players get space to play you know trust them a little bit more be a little less like calling plays and directing diagrams and trust a little more that If you put them in positions, they'll figure it out. And I can imagine that being a little bit like, man, then why am I here (laughs) to a lot of coaches, you know? Uh, So I think it's been really interesting to watch the profession evolve as much as watching the game evolve to kind of address like what, what is it that I do as a coach to help these players succeed if I'm not telling them 
we are going to set a pin down screen at exactly this time and curl out here. And you're going to throw the ball to the post exactly here. And everybody's going to stand still until the post player gets exactly here. You know, when you're not doing that direct role, I can imagine it's a lot. It's really hard for a coach to be like, you know, how can I most affect the players while also feeling like I'm valuable? My under 11 girls team knows the answer. It's always space. Yeah. <laughs> it's always space. That's it. So yeah. like th- what you share does connect at all levels. Now to the extreme, like we're not shooting threes, but the goal is the same to create space. And what's the goal for the defense to take away space. And it's such a simple way of being able to explain the game. And that's what I love about what you've shared. So, so maybe, maybe just start first with talk about the importance of space as it related to the NBA and the development of this modern NBA game. Yeah. I mean, like you said, it really is, the currency of the sport. Um, I think you have to enable to see that it is the currency of the sport. You sort of have to imagine the sport is not a series of shot charts or a series of destinations, but as a journey to where you get those things. And, you know, I think to some degree, so much of this revolution was spurred on by three is more than two. Uh, and that's a very simple concept of it. But a lot of it really is about what happens if if we're taking threes, we got to stand here. And if we're standing here, the surface area of the court is just expanding on every possession. The court itself literally hasn't expanded. It's still 94 by 50. But if you're shooting the ball from 35 feet, you know, one of the things that I did in this book that I didn't include, I think actually maybe I should have, was early in this process, I tracked a couple games from – you know, their YouTube had a game from 1990. I think it was the Lakers and the Jazz. And then there is a Bucks raptors game from 2000. And instead of tracking like a shot chart, I just sort of manually tracked a screen chart. Mm. So like, where is everybody setting a screen? And what was crazy to me is that if you look at the Lakers-Jazz game, everything's like kind of clustered around the cross screens, uh, block to block. Interior Whereas, screening, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, you know, John Stockton coming over to set a cross screen for Carl Malone or whoever saying a cross screen for James Worthy, you know, that there was like kind of this big blob of dots right around, like kind of the like semicircle uh, in the, in the lane. You look at that Bucks Raptors game. They're all like, all these screens are up by the three point line for guys to step into threes. When you put it that way, you realize like to generate the three point shots, you're asking people to do go into different spaces on the floor. And I think doing it that way sort of revealed to me that, Literally, even though the court wasn't bigger, what players were actually required to cover had gotten a lot bigger. And that's really where the whole thing kind of started. Uh, I kind of would think to myself, what does it mean for all these different things, whether it's schematic, whether it's players themselves, that, you know, one day, essentially, maybe over seven, five, six, seven years, the court is twice as big. It's like in, if you're in gym class and capture the flag, it's like, oh, actually, the boundary is here. You know, you're going to run differently. Um, so I, that's sort of where the the whole thing started for me. And, you know, kind of from there, I think it just sort of in some ways explains everything. Um, it's almost like one of those things that's like almost too simple to notice when you're really into it, you know? I'll give uh, coaches something to watch, like even at the college level or the high school level, because here's an example that connects with what you're saying. It used to be, say, 15, 20 years ago, traditional four-out spacing would be lane, line, lane, line, 45 and 45. And now I would say almost all 
effective offensive teams space to corners and 45s or slots and 45s or slots and corners rather than this traditional high spacing. And simply by doing that without increasing the size of the court, they've increased the distance that the defense has to cover. And that's essentially your premise in this. It's Mm -hmm. a lot of different ways to do it that doesn't necessarily just involve shooting the three. Yeah. I mean, and I would say the 45 is even stretched what? From like Much elbow extended to like yeah. Yeah. to like the hash mark all the way out near the logo. I mean, yeah. in a very simple way, you ask five people to cover twice as much space as they're going to have to cover more space collectively, and more space allows you to do so many different things. It really does allow the game to breathe. Um, and you know, I think it's to be able to get to that point. I think a lot of coaches had to accept that you know there's more things that can happen in that space. So. There's less that you can control about what happens. You know, it's very striking to me reading a lot of older NBA coaches when they were talking about players shooting threes in the early days about like this guy's allowed to shoot the three. Reggie Miller is allowed to shoot a three because he's good at it. Del Curry is allowed to shoot a three. I think I think I quote Sam Mitchell saying Larry Brown had this like rule of who could shoot threes. Now it's like almost the opposite. Like you're now allowed to shoot a mid range shot. You know, and just to kind of get it from, I'm not trying to control what you shoot, but I'm, I'm trying to create the the chaos in the defense's mind. That's a big, that's a fundamental shift for how coaches think. I think, and I think that explains a lot. It does, and it, and you know, even now, like I still hear it from coaches all the time. Oh, they've got to earn the right to shoot the three, and I'm like, okay, I get that from a percentage of makes perspective, but not from a player development perspective. And if we're talking below the NBA level. We're generally talking about player development. And you know what? The best player development is obviously to be able to create space and advantage for your teammates. So that ability to shoot the three, again, my 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 young, my young oldest daughter shoots threes. She doesn't shoot them well yet, but it's- How old is your daughter? I'm she's 11. Sorry. She's oh, 11. she's on the team. Wow, yeah. yeah. So the mindset of her is, and again, for her future development, I said, you don't have to be a good shooter now. But you have to have this mindset that this shot is actually going to determine your success. And to me, that's the part that I think coaches don't connect for players. It's not that we want them to shoot a whole bunch of threes, but we want them to understand the possibility and what that creates for them. Yeah, I talk a, something. One thing I talk about in the book is this rise of this 0.5 mentality uh, that really dominates the NBA now. I sort of trace it back to Greg Popovich and that 2014 Spurs team, but it probably goes back even further than that. And I don't know. I I'm. 35 uh and when i was growing up i I was never very good but like we were always taught triple threat you got to kind of catch the ball put it down by your shoulder and that means you can pass dribble shoot and you can scan the defense well the triple threat is a very static position you have to get into it and then sort of read point five is entirely a different concept it's the act of acting quickly is actually making all of us better and if you have to act quickly, you have to then, I think, as a coach, accept that some of those shots are going to be long threes. Some of those quick decisions are going to be shot, you know, and some of those quick decisions are going to be shots from far away and all of that. And that is, I think, very hard to wrap your heads around. I, you know, the idea of like, we're supposed to get a good shot, you're you're short circuiting that by giving this freedom over. And I think that's just hard to accept. I mean, even... You know, even listening to like Steve Kerr talk about the Warriors and the way they play, I mean, he's always harping on turnovers, turnovers, turnovers. Well, I'll tell you one way you don't ever turn the ball over. You don't ever do anything, you know? So it's sort of that that uh, that push and pull. And I think 
for coaches, it was a lot of maybe erring on the side of trying to control. And now it's erring on the side of sort of exploiting that chaos. And that's why I think it's sort of an existential crisis. Like if I'm just letting them do what they want, what am I doing? Hmm. Fascinating. And and for Golden State in particular, there's more turnovers because there's more ball movement and player movement mm-hmm. than a lot of teams. Whereas, you know, the Harden Rocket type teams, I imagine the turnovers were pretty low because there's less passes, less ball movement. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Mike D'Antoni was one of the first people to really think this. I think he had these famous quotes that was like, you know, if I'm a high passing team, we're going to be, if we shoot quickly, we're going to be a low turnover team. Or if I'm a high passing team, we're going to turn it over more because there are more opportunities. So, yeah, I think it just it's just a mindset that's hard to wrap for people to wrap their heads around. Well, and the part that connects for me is, I mean, and you share this, the most important lesson of the three-point revolution, and we're talking about this, it's it's not about the effect of taking all those threes, not the not the threes, or it is about the effect of taking all those threes, not about making the threes themselves, right? It's the effect. Yeah. It, the effect of this whole thing. So what does it do? It creates more space for driving. It makes, and, and to be honest, I think the other part that I thought you connected really well is it, it, it connected the fact that there's actually more room for innovation. And I find coaching way more innovative nowadays than it was 15, 20 years ago, even. Yeah. I mean, I think there are a lot of reasons for that. One is just the rise in technology. I mean, the very fact that I can walk, go on YouTube and watch a video of how red star belgrade runs their offense or something like that is just something that wasn't available 15 20 years ago so just the innovation curve is higher um i think that's a huge definitely a huge factor the thing that's actually an interesting uh i don't know what you think about this but sort of an interesting kind of wrinkle to this is that i would a lot the big complaint about the nba from a lot of people who loved it 15 20 years ago is that everybody looks the same with the way they play that they're all running the same stuff they're all going after the same outcomes there's they're all running variations of spain pick and roll if you're a coach that instead of a normal fan they're all running quick action they're all running these so they're all doing the same things so in some ways offense is actually a lot simpler if you think about it from a design standpoint but if you think about it more from an effect standpoint there's more you can pack into that space and there are more combinations of the same thing you can pull together. And there's the chaos element as well. I mean, it's, you know, one of the things that I always find funny is how often in the NBA, these very smart, super brilliant guys with all the information required close out on bad shooters really hard. I'm sure you've seen it many times. I mean, I, I use the example of Marcus Smart in the book. Marcus Smart is, I think, a 32% career three-point shooter. And yet he acts, he acts like he's much better and everybody falls for it. How is it that these teams that have all this information about how Marcus Smart shoots still make these dumb mistakes? The reason is that they have to hold a lot more in their brain because it's over more space and it's faster. That's the other effect, I think. So it sort of changes, I think, the coaching, um, I guess, emphasis on what do I draw up to how does what I draw up work and what's the timing of when I draw it up and what can I combine that at the right time that is something that the defense hasn't seen that will just cause this paralysis or this frenzy that will make them make mistakes. It's again, a very different, it's almost like kind of thinking of the sport more like soccer than football, American football, I should say. Yeah. 
So uh, just to piggyback on that, the alignment may be the same and, and some of the actions are the same, but the way they combine them, the way they blend them, as you alluded to, they're completely different. And what's even more different is the type of players. Like there are yeah. so many <laughs> unique talents, aren't there, in the NBA currently? Yeah, this is a part that I always find amusing when people who say, you know, the game is all the same. I mean, if the game is all the same, how do you explain Chris Paul and Zion Williamson and Giannis and Victor Wembanyama and Nikola Jokic all thriving in it? It's crazy the differences. The individual differences are just incredible. Yeah. So it's just to me, there's like, it's, but part of the problem is that I think as an analyst community, as fans, as people who explain the game, and even to some degree as coaches, we have focused so much on what the shots are that we have sort of almost, I would rather see movement charts than shot charts. I find, I think that would be much more instructive to illustrate the difference of this game. Imagine, I don't know if you're a soccer fan, but they have, they have movement charts out there. I think Opta tracks them where they sort of have heat maps of where the players go. I just, if you like, did that in the NBA, I think you would find this would be much easier to illustrate. Well, I imagine second spectrum and all that data does that somewhat, but I mean, I don't have access. So <laughs> yeah. curious to get some NBA people to share some of that information. But, uh, you, you know, the other part that you said about the market smart and the closeout is like, it's still humans playing a, a human exactly. sport against humans. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and the threat of the three point shot has become such a part of people's mindsets that even a 32% three-point shooter can force a reaction. And yeah. what I love, and want you to expand on this, the benefits of space. Best players are operating with the ball in their hands with more space, and other players are in spots to optimize their value. And to me, that's the brilliance of what you shared throughout this. You didn't get hung up on the three-point shot in the number of attempts. It's about the space that it's been created. Yeah, well, I appreciate that, first of all, because that was definitely the goal. Um one thing that's happening in the NBA that's really interesting to this point is that two-point shooting is at among its highest levels ever. At least it was as of a couple of weeks ago. You know, for all this talk of this scoring explosion in the NBA, most of it is driven by every zone of two-point shooting. Layups to long mid-range shots are higher percentage than they ever have been. And the reason for that is everybody's coming out to the three-point line. There's more space to operate in there well that number one and number two the right people are shooting the shots you know i think that has also happened there's sort of a merging of math and feel that has sort of exploded into this mushroom cloud of what we have now uh and yeah i mean it, one of the things that's interesting you notice you know i think over the last couple of years is more and more teams embracing the dunker spot on the baseline that's you know you hear a lot from people what if we eliminate the corner three would this stop this and i think that would certainly have an effect but my guess is that most of the people that are currently standing in the corners would probably just matriculate further to the basket on the baseline and to maintain that perimeter on the other end of the spacing kind of the spacing surface area. So, you know, I think that's an interesting innovation. I think that what the Bucks did a couple of years ago when they kept losing in the playoffs and Miami's wall and Toronto's wall just kept stifling Giannis's drives, they said, hey, we'll put a guard here, then the wall will be further back and it's easier for him to dunk on those, those guys. That was very interesting, and I think that's not a three-point motivated change but i'm seeing a lot more of that and you're seeing a lot more i think also of if we have four, you know guys all around the perimeter and the lane is open and we're charging it maybe we'll charge it by driving the ball 
ourselves with the star. Maybe that's what we get, like what Giannis does. Maybe it'll be a great roll, rim roller. Like, you know, I guess Embiid doesn't really roll that hard, but, you know, Anthony Davis at his peak or someone like that, that's sort of how we'll kind of break that space. Or maybe we'll run this screen here and then the guy in the slot will do a 45 cut or the guy in the corner will back door. And that's where our attack angle is. Or maybe what I'm seeing a lot more now too is, We'll shoot the shot, and then everybody will be in rotation, and our quarter guy will loop out to like the middle of the free throw line and grab a rebound. If you think of it more as like kind of opening space to charge, like again a capture the flag analogy, you could that charger could come from anywhere. So, yeah, I think that's a huge part of it. But that doesn't happen if you aren't also setting the other edge of the perimeter underneath the basket. You know, that's that's I think the other form of we can't really go any further back in the mid court line at a half court possession, but we can kind of creep along the baseline a little bit more. Yeah, you, you said uh, people that don't like this or want to change this. I'm like, who are those people? Because the game's never been better. Like the skill that's on display has never been better. And we're going to get into this later with you about how defenses are going to adjust and, and create some kind of potential solutions. But I'll just share a simple example. My nine-year-old daughter, if I'm watching a college basketball game, unless it's one or two teams that she knows plays fast or tries to score, she won't watch it. She goes, Dad, can we watch the NBA or the WNBA? It's, it's so interesting. Yeah, it's, it's like at that level, she understands, oh, these people are trying to score more than the others, so the game's more enjoyable. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's very interesting why there is this undercurrent of frustration about the current game. I think there are just so many complicating factors. But to me, it all comes back to, I don't think people realize how much change so quickly. You know, it's hard to all our brains to adjust to change. You know, when your court doubles, essentially, even though the court is not doubled, I mean, it's jarring. It's like you're watching a whole different sport. And if you grew up liking the sport looking one way, it's for a lot of people, I think it's very hard to adjust to that. I also think that because it moves so fast, it almost paradoxically can be harder to follow. I don't know about what you think. I mean, I it's like a hockey all, problem, right? If you go watch hockey for the first time, mm-hmm. you're like, I can't follow the puck. Absolutely. I feel that way watching hockey. Yeah. Like, do you remember when they had the uh the light on the puck yeah, like the, totally back remember. in the day? Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Everybody in hockey hated it. That's why well, Pierce hated it, but for the general fan, it made sense to be able to follow the puck a little bit easier. Yeah. Yeah. Uh so it it's interesting. I mean, I don't know what it's like for you when you watch a game, but I obviously am trying to look off the ball as much as on it. I find that like watching a game, sitting down for like, you know, watching a DVR of a game, it's more exhausting. I have more to follow, you know, just because my, my, my eyes are just darting like this. And I know I don't watch the game like most people, you know, the average person is, uh, you know, not, doesn't have to watch it. That's comp- in that complex a way, but. Yeah, it's harder to follow. I think when you had like no illegal defense, you could just throw the ball to Shaq and clear out. And it was just the everybody's eyes were knew exactly where to go. And now the same thing that makes it more amazing and come cool for people who are coaching or people who, you know, are really watching obsessively is also what makes it harder for casuals. That's such an interesting point. I agree with that. Like there's so much more. And that's where I don't get the argument that it looks the same. Like there's so much variability within the game now. And I agree with you. Like it's, it is, is it is much harder to watch in a sense. And I've never thought of it that way. Um, It is also much different, by the way. Everybody is much different than 
1990s. So it it, mm-hmm. it feel it's like almost like relatively speaking, right? Mm-hmm. You know, even the team that plays the most like a 90s team looks something nothing like a 90s team. So everybody, so it's very easy to focus on how different it is without instead of sort of looking a little closer at how different everybody is within the spectrum. It's like we're on a whole different plane in a lot of ways. So I didn't mean to cut you off, but I think that's no, no, it's an, great. An interesting sort of way to think of it is, you know, if everybody is almost like kind of just so far removed from what people are used to that it's just hard not to focus on that first. Well, and I think sometimes people lose perspective on the fact that the goal of creating this space is not to shoot threes, it's to score more layups and get yes. fouled more, right? And sometimes we lose that perspective when we see 43 shot in a game. But if you look at the scoring overall, like rim attempts are probably higher than they've ever been. Certainly rim percentage is higher than mm-hmm. it's ever been. Uh, and yeah, like the two-point shooting is better. Yeah. I mean, that's what Mike D'Antoni would always say. Um, but, you know, you have to, in order to you know, profit off a threat, you have to present the threat. Mm-hmm. If you're not going to shoot three, why am I guarding you out there? And I think that was maybe a point that people had trouble wrapping their heads around. And you mentioned off the ball. I think that's the other part that uh, for coaches, I think this is the part that we really geek on, geek out on is how many different variations of off the ball cutting is now happening. And people say, you know, we don't screen off the ball. We don't do as much screening maybe, but like cutting drives, which we call second cuts, or, you know, different types of actions off of the, you know, short roll and someone cuts and all these variations of cutting have just made the game so interesting to watch off the ball. Look, I'm with you 100%. What I find interesting is how many people say the opposite. Yeah. As Stan Van Gundy is, was quoted in a Bleach Report story by one of my friends, Mo DeKeel, who writes now is with the Athletic Podcasting maybe three years ago. He said cutting is a dying art in the NBA. I mean, Stan Van Gundy knows what the hell he's talking about. So why would he say that? I don't know. I, I think some people are hung on to the past so much and maybe defending the past, but we're not saying the past was bad. We're just saying the game's the game is different. It's just different. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I you know, it's yeah, it's interesting. I think just I have a whole theory in the book as to why maybe he would have thought that way, but I just I think a lot of it is just our eyes are used to going in different places. So we're just missing things. There's more to see. You know. I mean, I, I'm an editor by trade. I, I work with writers and kind of work to help them improve. In some ways, I coach them. <laughs> you know, it's, it's sort of the the comparison I'm making. One of the things I always tell them is that, like, you know, if you're trying to build a scene to kind of set put me in the moment, you know, show rather than tell, as we talk about so much in journalism, don't underestimate how much just, like, the same picture can yield so many different things. Like, just telling someone to look somewhere else in the picture or even just sort of recreating a scene, you know, don't assume that just because they watch on TV, they know what you're watching, you know, or they, they can frame it that certain way. So like even scene setting as a, in a journalism profession, I think it can be much more universal than a lot of writers feel because there's just, I mean, there's just so much happening in our eyes. I was read a lot of vision studies, like about what our eyes pick up in our environment. Like if you really look at it, no two people see the same scene the same way. Like there is like science behind this. So it's just, you know, the ability to just sort of point out what's, and this is what I love about basketball. It's all, it's all, I'm sorry, I'm rambling now, but this is like just such a, it's the one sport where all 10 players are in the frame most of the time at the same time. Coach, a brief interruption from our podcast to tell you about basketballmersion.com. 
Why do so many coaches coach like it was 20 years ago? Technology, research, innovation have all expanded our understanding of teaching, coaching, and learning. Change can be hard to accept, but with an open mind and willingness to learn, it is possible. This is what basketball immersion has done for so many coaches. Coaches at all levels of basketball from around the world have stimulated their coaching development using the basketball immersion membership community. Embrace the change that will impact your players and team beyond anything you can imagine. Join our basketball immersion community at basketballimmersion.com. Absolutely. And, and that's a brilliant part of the sport. I agree. I, I, I agree. I mean, your love for basketball shines through in this and your writing. And, uh, and, and I love that because to, to me, too, I'm curious about this from your perspective. I feel like people like you have increased the collective understanding of the game to a deeper level. Because do you feel that now versus, say, 10 years ago that you can write a lot more detailed account of basketball uh, a lot more in depth because of analytics, because people have just become collectively more intelligent because of YouTube, because of, you know, different podcasts, uh, blogs, et cetera. There's all these things that have made us smarter, whether you're a coach or a fan, made us smarter. Yeah, I think you're being very kind to me, first of all. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, that's, I mean, just to hear that is like, I mean, I, I can't believe it's hard to hear. I think. A lot of it is, you know, it's all, again, technology makes it all available. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's a huge element of it. You know, I can, I mean, just to kind of, I obviously couldn't you know, put GIFs or videos inside a book. You know, it's not how the technology works, but you can do it inside of stories. You can literally narrate over film. I mean, anyone can do that. Uh, it's just, you know, when film was first invented you know or when i think the lakers in the 70s were the first team to ever watch film you know they literally had to like put a spool into the projector and their owner wouldn't pay for the right projector and so that i mean just to be able to watch yourself this is what the barrier was so on your phone now <laughs> it's, it's just so much easier i mean i i think i would credit that more so than anything yeah. that that any of us have written but you know the tools are out there and we're trying to use them, I suppose. And it's a lot of fun. And I want to come back to some of the things because I really think you hit on some cool things here. This concept of positionless basketball, if you could just highlight that. So I do think it's really valid from a development standpoint, but I agreed with your premise from a, from the NBA perspective. It's not as positionless as you think. They're, they're quite defined roles now for players, uh, you know, uh, unless you're a superstar. You know, I'm actually interested to hear a little bit more about how developmentally it, it's helpful. I, is that how much of that is perhaps based on the prior understanding of positional rigidity? You know, one of the, the things I did in that chapter was sort of literally go back to when Naismith invented the game. And it was like, you know, they're called guards, forwards, and centers because three of them stood in the middle, three on this side, three on that side. Like, that's literally all it is. You know, there's nothing magical. It's not like Naismith invented the game. It was like a guard has to dribble and never get into the paint. Like the, the, it is society, it is like the development of the game that pushed us that way. And so I often wonder when you say sort of, I think the term positionalist is very much evolved as a direct response to what came before it rather than like to be taken literally. Like compared to 1997, we are much more positionalist. But we, that doesn't mean that literally people I, – I, I use the example of Billy Knight and the Hawks in the mid-2000s, and I actually think there's some interesting parallels between the Raptors right now with their struggles. You know, 
just collecting like a bunch of generalists, like that can cause a lot of challenges. What I think the through line that happens is that the players are changing positions at different points. So maybe that's why it speaks a little bit to developmentally. It's helpful to think of it as positionless, even if it in practice, it's not. Developmentally, it speaks to this is that we want you to be a basketball player. We don't want you to be a position. And I think so many players in the past developed to be a position, to develop to be a post player, develop to be a point guard, uh, develop to be a wing, right? As opposed to, I want every player, and I ask kids all the time at camp, and I still ask them, I say, hey, what position do you play? What position? And they'll say they're a five or they're a forward or this. And I say, here's the goal that all of you, when you're asked that question, you say, I'm a basketball player. And it's <laughs> up to the coach relative to what type of, you know, team they have to put me in a situation that's best for the team. But for me and my development, I want to be the most skilled, best version of a basketball player I can be. And that's really what I see as positionless and how the game kind of is evolving. So it's more like as a coach, I want to be able to have the option to bundle you in different ways. Yeah. Like why would I want to be able to post up my point guard or to be able to have my traditional five be able to attack off the dribble in isolation like that's really what i see as positionless rather than you know in in a certain extent i think coaches even at the nba level they still define players by position you know because it helps players kind of understand this initial structure to things about Mm -hmm. where you start in an alignment but the reality is like we want them all to be able to shoot the three and drive and pass you know i I actually want to ask you a little more about this because i just find this to be so interesting you know I don't know how much you're familiar, you know, open offices in the tech world were sort of a big thing for a while. This was like the theory was like, if we just have everybody sitting with no walls, they'll talk to each other more easily. We can rebundle them how they want. It's just a more open. This was like kind of a big thing in like kind of office culture. For a long time. And I I know this in part because like my when I worked at SB Nation, I not work from home, but when I did work in office, it was an open office. What is interesting about that is that studies have shown that open offices are actually less productive because and people feel more guarded in them because they feel almost like it, it's almost like two. there's too little structure. There is, I want to protect certain things. I don't feel like I have a lot of space. Like I don't want to, you know, disrupt people. And to me, that's a really interesting example of like, in theory, the setup of an open office is what you want. But if you actually make it an open office, it just falls apart. I think of this positional as positional thing the same way. In theory, you want to have players who can do everything because you can rebundle them. The problem and the challenge of coaching, and I'm curious to you speak on this, is how do you Knowing that you have that, how do you sort of also communicate that we need a, a five-man structure that works? And yeah, it may change every so often. I would want it to change, and you should be flexible enough to change it. But if we don't have a five-man structure these days that makes sense, everybody gets worse. So how do you sort of square the individual growth of, I want you to be able to do everything and develop everything with but at the end of the day, like I'm going to ask you to do a limited thing on this possession to make the hole better. And then maybe the next possession you'll get to do another thing. How do you square that as a coach? Well, it's so hard, but the best coaches define roles for players to be successful. And, and then I think that's where you see the NBA probably does that more than 
any other level, WNBA, NBA, is that, look, they're all getting paid, so they all have incentive to do it and to fill a role that keeps them in their career as long as possible. But that's what I think they truly do, is that this is your best version of yourself for our team in this situation. And actually giving you structure provides you more freedom, which seems like a contradiction, right? But that's exactly what you're saying is that giving you this structure gives you more freedom to be the best version of yourself. And that's really what we try and shape. And to the open office point, which is a great example, by the way, I I was in one just a little bit and I hated it because it didn't, I didn't (laughs) feel, I didn't feel like I had this kind of this, this safety, this psychological safety to be able to flow and do what I wanted to do or what I could do and go where it takes me. So I think sometimes defining something for a player as a role or as a position does help them understand within this really defined structure what they can do to be able to help themselves and help the team. And that's hard, you know, that I think in that you're right. I think that's the essence of coaching right now is sort of to manage those ambitions with the team's goals. In a lot of ways, it's a lot like being an editor, I think, which is what I do is sort of, you know, how do you get a writer to be the best version of themselves? I think you would think that an editor just looks at your copy and is like, you missed a comma here, or you have a typo here, or, you know, you use three words versus two here. I mean, it's a lot like how people think coaches, their job is to draw plays, you know, or, to call timeouts or to manage a rotation, all the stuff they see. But really a lot of it is about how you're doing today. Like, you know, how do we put you in a better position so that when you are sitting down to write the story, you don't feel like you have a lot of things coming through your head. How do we kind of provide you structure and make it so that we you're working on stuff that's valuable? How do we give you the space to pursue a story that maybe will take more time, but doesn't while also not taking you away from what you have to do all the time daily to kind of feed feed the beast or whatever um to kind of get reach your audience you know how do we there's just so much of like kind of you're almost like kind of a therapist in a lot of ways for these folks and i think that's a lot like what coaching is like now um but at the end of the day you work for i work for the athletic you work for your team so all the personal development of writer x is very important and we obviously want the writers to be the best versions of themselves, but it has to make sense in the context of the whole team. You can't have six writers who want to cover the same story, you know? So how do you sort of manage those ambitions and create a, I mean, ultimately the goal of basketball is for the five to equal more than the sum of its parts. I I say basketball works best when one plus one doesn't equal two, you know? Um, And that may just to, just to go there, like, I feel your editor example is a fascinating one because I love these parallels between things like, are you ever getting your group of writers together as one big group and having a big team talk? You know, it depends a little bit on how you're structured. Um, I think that's another question you have to ask yourselves a lot. I mean, just to, I mean, we obviously, the athletic is so many different writers doing in so many different places. I think in my, my old job was a much smaller staff. So there was a lot more of this sort of, these places where everybody was there. But I think the challenge, there's a slip side of that challenge too, where if everybody is there, then you have five people suggesting things and, you know, you have to manage that. There's a, a tricky balance uh, for, but, you know, we have a Slack channel that is just all the writers. We have a Slack channel. It's all the editors. You know, my, I, 
currently manage three writers uh, directly while still working with them. And I think we don't have like a formal, like here's where all four of us talk at the same time, but those four different combinations of the four of us talk all the time. And, you know, they, they go on the road and they see each other. Like the writers themselves, I think have like a group chat where they just, where they shut, it's not for editors. And it's very similar, I think, to the challenges of kind of a coach where you would love it if you could just like kind of say, everybody you give the same instructions at once and they just get it but in truth as a coach you've got to that like filter the message down through so many different people and do so much one-on-one i mean that in some ways that's a lot how our organization works as well well and i wish more people had appreciation of what you just said relative to that's what modern coaching is exactly what you said it's not one big team talk it's all these little individual conversations amongst each other, amongst the coaches, amongst the assistants, amongst their agents, all these little mini conversations help to form and define these roles and define the culture of your team more than anything. And I feel like a broken record in saying that so much on the podcast, but I really do think the best coaches are the ones that are able to, as you referred to, create that balance between all these other things, but also create this belonging. So that Mm -hmm. every single player feels like they belong. And I think positionality used to provide a belonging to a player, right? Oh, you're the center. Very interesting way of thinking about it. You're the center. You belong here because you're the center. And this is your very defined role. And I think that coaches have had to work very hard. And I'd love to have this conversation with some other coaches about how to create belonging for certain players and like defining your role. You're, you're, you're Danny green. You stand in the corner, you shoot threes, you get paid a lot of money to do that. That's your role, right? That's a heck of a thing. And what a career the guy's had because he's accepted that to a certain extent. So these things are so fascinating. Yeah. The the sense of belonging. Wow. I hadn't really thought of it. That's a brilliant way of putting it. And you see that with so many of these young players who, you know, are playing a role. I, I one of the, the one of the writers I work with is our Pelicans writer, and they are a team that has all these young players who are trying to find themselves. And one of the things that their coach is just amazing at, and I just marvel Willie Green at how he's able to do this. Is you've got guys. How many guys do they have that have been drafted in the last five or six years trying to like establish themselves, and yet they all seem to have a role. I know they've struggled recently, but they're still ambitious and want to be the best they can be, but like they still fit the role they have. I mean, that to me is just like uh, incredible to, to sort of witness and hear. And this is why I think it's a, to circle back to the existential crisis of coaching. If I'm Willie Green or if I'm you running a program, I am often, and I think about this as an editor too, I am having a hard time saying, this thing that it was accomplished is because of something I did. Mm. You know what I mean? You know, it's not like if I have a position and if players have a position and I say your position is a center, which means you do these three things or the one that I, I really cite in the book one at one point is like, if I have plays, I can say you ran the play, you're doing what I asked. You didn't see ya. That's easy. In some ways, I know where my impact is, but in a situation like this, how do you like, I just think existentially is such a challenge. You know, everything and nothing is your responsibility. Well, creating value or, or sorry, supporting a player's value is harder is what you're saying, basically. Yeah. And I think that's where analytics and some of these other things have really helped create it. But I know video as well. Like I know some really smart coaches. I've shared this before. Like they've, they've created video edits of a, of a player who sets a pick and roll rolling and not getting the ball. 
and mm-hmm. showing the value of them rolling hard and not getting the vol. Say they draw people, they create space. Space is always the answer. So like yep. it's different creative ways to be able to show and demonstrate someone's value beyond traditional box scores. And I think that's where analytics and some of these things have grown and really helped support that. And I think the challenge for a high school coach or youth coach like me is obviously being able to do that in certain ways. But I have always said to people, and probably for you as an editor, one of the most important things we can do on a daily basis is to notice progress, to be yes. able to go to a player and say, hey, listen, you you didn't do this as well last week, but look at how much better you're doing it now. Yes. Yeah. I mean, just the recent, I mean, like, if I say like, you know, you could have set that scene better and they do it, you know, it's very important. I try to make sure I say, when they do it, I say, look at, you did it a lot better this time. Uh, but, you know, that's, it's just very exhausting too. Oh, okay. You know, so just... there's the most important part. All of this is much more exhausting. So when people talk about the the, the size of a coaching uh, staff now, like, yeah, we can kind of joke about it. Like they used to have two coaches on the bench and now they have, you know, 10 and plus a whole bunch behind the scenes. But to your point, it's exhausting now, some of these things. All those individual conversations cannot be all just a head coach. They've got to come from different people. All the analytics got to come from different people. So yeah. if you're doing it right, all these things are exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. And and as a coach, like, I mean, maybe I'm only one who thinks this way, but like, if I employ or if I like kind of ask another editor to help break a sort of tension point and it, they, they do really well, do I get credit or does that person get credit? You know, am I, am I valuable because I knew who to pass that on to, or am I less valuable because somebody else solved the problem for me? And I think that's a really hard mental hurdle to overcome. And the, the last thing I wanted to, I mean, this is a slight diversion, but just to go back to your point about um, showing them that, Hey, when you roll, this happens. One of the, think the big lessons of this era is it's much harder to there's much more indirect impact that all these players have on each other that is it, paradoxically we have better ways to measure it and it's harder to measure it. and i think the joy to me of basketball is that you can have that complexity that it is not so simple as like i know the exact effect of what i've done and it's measured by a certain thing but for basketball to work it's about the five man unit nowadays more so than ever you know no illegal defense and added space and all these sorts of everybody being rebundled in different ways i mean that's beautiful but it's also challenging and i think to some degree that explains why i think the sport is in its best place but a lot of people don't i think that sort of explains both of those things yeah and and what you refer to the subtleties of the game is is the part that i think I personally am so aligned with it's so enjoyable to watch the subtleties of the game. And uh, instead of taking this big picture, I was just shooting a lot of threes, just like there's so many subtleties to how teams are shooting threes and how Mm -hmm. they're creating threes and the threes off the dribble and the skill that requires. It's just such a beautiful game to watch. And it's so fun. Uh, Before we move on, I I, want to get to the defensive side a little bit and get Mm -hmm. your opinion on kind of, we've talked about this impact on, on offense and the space created. So uh, what do you foresee as some of the solutions going forward in terms of some of these challenges, which is now it is largely an offensive game in some people's opinions? Yeah, it's it's really hard. I mean, I think the first thing you have to do as a listener, as a viewer, or, as, or even as a coach is to sort of understand that it's it's just a simple math problem. Five people in twice the space 
you know, what are you going to do? You can't add more players. You can make the players a little bit longer. You know, we just have to recalibrate a little bit of what is success, I think, in some ways. One thing that I think happened maybe that this year is actually kind of fought back against in the NBA is, you know, there was, I think, a time where we were not, the technique of defense was not measured up to the space, I think, in terms of how we slid and how we closed out and just the rigidity of the step slide, you know, defensive slide method rather than thinking of it more as like, you know, you have to cross step or turn and run and hit flexibility. I think there was a period, I think maybe I would say the last three years where some of those things have been corrected. And I think last year you saw a little bit of the effect of that. Now I think the problem is that team offenses have responded to that by saying, okay, now you can guard us out here. Well, great. Now we have all this space in here and we're going to find different ways to use that, whether it's duck-ins. I think there's been a lot more two-point, like people matriculating inside the arc now. And so I think the real challenge for defense going forward is, you know, at some point you just have to decide what you're taking away and what you're willing to live with. You know, I sometimes think that, Maybe just because the players are standing and shooting threes, like, okay, they, they're going to hit some of them, but like, do you have to close out on all of them? You know, is there a zone of the court that you need to force people to in a more direct way? You're seeing a little bit of that in the NBA this, this year where like kind of, if the guys kind of forced in isolation, you'll see them sort of send this hit, the hit trap at them, I think is what it's called, where they got, they had sent a second player, you know, from the wing and try to play force the ball out of their hands. I mean, that, that has its drawbacks, but at least you're controlling what the offense is doing. You know, I maybe you should full court press more. Maybe you should try to you know do some more of these junk defenses. I just, I think at a certain point you have to kind of t- ask yourself where are the spaces we want players to go, and where are the ones that we cannot live with under any circumstances. And that's tough because it requires you to set to like almost again accept that you're not going to get a stop all the time. You know, and I, I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I, I think that there has to be sort of maybe a more collective understanding, whether it's you're playing man or zone, that, you know, these is, this is where we cannot let the person go. This is where we are trying to force you to. And this is an outcome that we'll just have to live with. And we none of us know where it's going, but I know there's really smart people working on coming up with these solutions for some of these things. But I love how you said it. And basically, this comes back to a lot of the evolution in coaching, especially basketball coaching and things that we obviously share within our basketball immersion community is to just continually ask, is there a better way and get rid of Mm -hmm. some of these old paradigms, as you said, these you know, how much time did we spend on zigzag footwork on defense where meanwhile, I'm like, what's the fastest way to get from point A to point A is to sprint and cross over your feet. Right. Like it's such a simple example. And there are still people that disagree with that and that's fine. But I think by and large, uh, really, really smart people are thinking ahead and going, okay, what is, you know, even individual differences in closing out like that, that the way Mike would close out versus the way Chris would close out would be different because our bodies are different. So there's yeah. all these accounting for individual differences and all these different things, which I think are going to help defense obviously get better. And then as you alluded to already, man, Europe, I mean, they just have so many, they have less perfect rosters. They have more turnover in coaches and less time, less job security. So coaches are willing to try stuff. And you mentioned the spy, I think, which is a football term, right? The spy defense. Yeah. 
I'm seeing that in the college level now, the goalie defense, I call it. But, uh, you know, where one player just is not being covered at all and the other four players cover the other five to try and, mm-hmm. again, disrupt and and just create 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 distor- uh, distorted offense. So it, it's fascinating to watch, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you, even the concept of nexting uh, is kind of interesting. I don't know if that would come into the NBA as much as we, I would have thought at some point. But, yeah. I think part of the problem is that the 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 NBA is much more of an open game. So if you're flooding all these bodies to the nail or that area and you're sort of protecting your guy in the paint, there's just so much more space in between those places that can be exploited in the NBA versus you know overseas. That's my theory at least. But yeah, I mean there's there's all sorts of things. But I think a lot of one of the things that has to sort of th- this idea of one man guards one other man, I think, has obviously been shattered in so many ways, but we probably have a lot more to go to shatter it even more. You know, like you said, it's, the it's interesting. I've seen a college team this year basically have a defense in some of their possessions where they essentially say no help with four yeah. players. Four players are never going to help, and only one player is allowed to help to try and again disrupt certain teams that are are, are high volume three point shooting teams. And again, yeah. I'm not sure it's working. But it's fascinating to watch smart people work on these problems. Yeah, the last thing I would say is that, you know, this is going to really perhaps blow people's minds. But, like, why do we even think of it in terms of two sides of the ball? I mean, <laughs> what you do on on defense affects how your next offensive possession goes. So I'm not saying Vivek Nardive was right about four on five. But I'm not saying he's, like, that wrong either. Mm-hmm. Like, do we need to think about, you know, our strategy on offense informs our strategy on defense. I thought, you know, who's like the worth looking at again is the 90 Sonics with the uh, Bob Kloppenberg's SOS defense. Brilliant guy. Brilliant. Yeah. That's, that's interesting to look at where it's like our defense controls our offense. And do we, do we need to place more people like higher up the floor and lower? Like, do we need to kind of almost think of basketball as a full court game? And, you know, can we use our offense to like crash the glass or just sort of jam teams in and thus make it harder for them to start their offense. Do we need to think almost outside the box there? That's the other thing. I I saw a little more of that last year in the NBA with like Memphis and Toronto. I think this year, some of those teams are struggling in this in a different way as people adjust, but you know, or like kind of the opposite where you've got a team like the Clippers who doesn't drive a whole lot, shoots a lot of threes, but the trade-off to that is that they're always back on defense. Like a dump and chase is sort of the the process, like a like a hockey team just dumping it in. You know, we may have to sort of think a little bit more about how one side affects the other to the point where there are just no two sides of the ball. I love it, and you you know, like uh, in Europe, in high school, uh, in college, to a certain extent, there's no superstar problem. And when NBA people or WNBA people deal with these problems, one thing that does say discount tagging up as a system which is this uh super aggressive offensive rebounding system where five go to the boards or full court pressure is what to do with a superstar because we Mm -hmm. don't want to do things with steph curry that are going to prevent steph curry from being steph curry and that's a challenge right whereas at the youth levels or different youth levels like it's less disparity in talent so you can do things that are a little bit more extreme or outliers so it is a curiosity but i do know some nba teams really looked at tagging up as a concept and mm-hmm. then they just decided they can't do it with the players they want to play for 30 plus minutes who are so important on offense well what if you didn't play in 30 plus minutes there you go we're going to be curious or, to see. <laughs> you know 
or what if like i mean the same thing that could be a disadvantage could be an advantage mm-hmm. you know i'm not saying that like every team should have an offense like the mavericks and luca but like look if like kind of there's a way to make it so that those four players play harder on defense like maybe the whole maybe one plus one was worth more than two there i mean the same thing that's a problem could be an opportunity if you frame it the right way but it's hard I love it. I love your optimism. I love the way you approach it and look at the game. And uh, yeah, it's a lot easier said than done. I mean, I don't have to actually do it. So, you know, I, I, it's easier to sit here and just be like, oh, why don't they try this and this and this? But I don't have to talk to Steph Curry about it. Well, I, I wish more fans and, and and people like analysts like yourself are, would approach it from that perspective of thinking about possibilities rather than criticisms. Because, again, like as a coach, we have to choose one thing or we have to choose amongst these three things, for example, to do. And we're not always right because the other team's trying to do something against what we're doing. So it's not always a question of bad coaching. It's just a question of sometimes it just didn't work. So what are some other possibilities? And if we talk about possibilities, we'll keep moving the game forward, in my opinion. Yeah, well, I hope I can keep trying to do that. It's just, you know, it's hard. It's a results business. I mean, again, it, just as the same way that journalism is, you know, from not if, if your stories aren't doing numbers or if we're not breaking sort of news, if we're not, you know, meeting our deadlines, like at a certain point that like, we just got to get stuff on the board. That's the hardest part. Mike, uh, this has been tremendous. It's been a lot of fun to talk to you. And, uh, you know, I love these conversations because it doesn't always go where I think it's going to go. And that's part of the fun of this as well, talking to people that love basketball. Uh, Spaced out how the NBA's three-point revolution changed everything you thought you knew about basketball. It's available anywhere you buy books, Amazon, and et cetera. And uh, just a tremendous book. Coaches, I can guarantee you'll enjoy this from an entertainment and from a learning perspective and from stimulating thinking. So, Mike, again, congratulations on the book. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for having me, and keep up the great work that you do with your community. It's very interesting to see, to hear people talking about this in real time. Coach, I can't wait to get you back to the basketball podcast, but I wanted to take a brief moment to tell you about ImmersionVideos.com. Have you checked out ImmersionVideos.com? Watch an Oats practice and see how he has Alabama ranked in the top five nationally. Or get access to our new release featuring nine all-access practices from Alex Rama or other products from Tobin Anderson, Doug Novak, Dave Smart, Scott Morrison, Aaron Fern, Mark Cassio, Francisco Nanny, and more. ImmersionVideos.com was created to provide value to coaches like you who are looking to stimulate their professional development by offering unique all-access tools necessary for you to be an outstanding coach who values learning and seeks to evolve. Go to ImmersionVideos.com and check it out today. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the Basketball Podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things Basketball Immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter. Mm-hmm.